What we got here is failure to communicate, a chronic neglect of military mental health care. This is Psychiatric Casualties, how and why the military ignores the full cost of war. Well, good morning, Charles. Hello there. How are you, buddy? <laughs> it's afternoon right. here, almost afternoon here. Yeah, we're on the different side of the coast. And, and you know, before we get started, I just wanted to you know, get a shout out to Cindy Thompson and her team at Coming Home Well, who afforded this, this opportunity for us to you know, talk a bit about some of our experiences in the military and in particular, of course, you know, with military mental health care and what and where we, you know, the books that we've written about that topic and so on. So really appreciate that opportunity. I agree completely. It's it's an uh, unprecedented opportunity, frankly. And and we are not exactly seasoned at this, uh, but uh, we're confident that we'll catch on. Doesn't seem like it's that difficult just talking. Well, for some of us, maybe it's not difficult to talk. But yeah, it's going to be fun and engaging, and hopefully we'll include those of you who are listening. We need you to give us feedback and essentially to say where we are or not on track. But our purpose will be fairly clear after this session. Yeah, and you know we talked about that, and it would be awesome to get you know listeners' feedback, you know questions they have or reactions they have to things we say that we can talk about in future episodes. So towards the end of today's episode, I'll I'll provide a, an email address they can reach me at and reach us at. And that will allow people to, you know, provide some questions or reactions and then we can go from there. Well let me just jump in and introduce myself and then yeah, introduce his self. Uh, I'm Please. Charles Higley. I'm a professor at, at uh, Tulane University started blocking here for a second at Tulane University in New Orleans. Have been there since 2008. I was at Florida State University before that, and before that, Purdue University. Uh, full wow. professor. I'm a, a tenured, and there's a title or whatever. I'm I'm a fellow, I think. The distinguished fellow, I believe. Distinguished fellow. Okay, that I always forget that part. <laughs> I don't feel very distinguished. Oh my! But goodness. Mark and I together have published articles, at least a dozen, and we have published uh, two books. The most recent one is Psychiatric Casualties that we will be talking about definitely the next time we're together, and we'll be talking about a lot of other things. But let me just say, I got started in this when I got out of the Marine Corps uh, back in the uh, long time ago, and I was interested, I became interested in psychology while I was in the Marine Corps, I'd taken a couple of classes um, in English, not really uh, focusing on psychology, but it uh, took off because as soon as I got out of the military, I got out of my car and went to class at Ohio State University, even though I was down in, in North Carolina at the Cherry Point Marine Corps Air Station. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in... In the schoolwork, it became very clear to me that I'm, I was remembering relatively easy my experience being in Vietnam. 
And okay. it was something that I was a little uh, wary about. And, but I just kept going and all that. And I was very happy and glad I was out of the Marine Corps finally. And after four years, but the thing that uh, emerged in my life after that was really a combination of understanding what I went through and recognizing that I wasn't as lucky as a lot of men and women who've uh, been in, in the Marine Corps in particular, but also just generally in the military. Mm-hmm. So anyway, long story short, after all my schooling, I was able to become a professor and I cr- published quite a bit of, of articles focusing on, on military veterans. I wasn't so concerned or care that much about the military generally until I met Mark. And since we have met numbers of years ago, that's a lot of our work is, is connecting the dots in, in various areas, but particularly in terms of Mark's impressions that he will hopefully talk about soon about the, the whole notion of being in the military and, and how you get caught up in this big, huge, I'm, I'm going to say meat grinder, but I don't mean that in a negative necessarily way. You just get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. You know, the, the crowd, in effect. So, Mark... Well, Where do you come from? Before I go into that, though, what, what years were you in Vietnam? I was 65, 66. Oh, so pretty early in the conflict then. We were among the first offensive troops there. Yeah. With all of that discovery that was helpful for people that, that served after us. But uh, we were the ones that stumbled onto the, the various experiences. Yeah. Well, I just want to, before I, again, go into my my kind of narrative, how I got involved in this was just to kind of mention to the readers who may not be aware of exactly who you are, but you you are, in my eyes, and in many people's eyes, a pillar when it comes to the field of trauma. And you were a pioneer. You led efforts to get PTSD recognized as a genuine you know, war stress injury or traumatic stress injury, I should say, more broadly. Uh, you, you wrote one of the very first books on Vietnam War syndrome in the 70s, as well as the effects of war stress on families. And if I'm not mistaken, you also coined the term secondary traumatization as in regards to that word. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. And And so when I was doing my dissertation, I relied heavily on your your, your seminal work, and you have published hundreds of books and thousands of articles, and you're one of the most published and renowned traumatologists that that is you know that we have a pleasure of meeting and and learning from. So I wow. stand on your shoulders, my friend. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I ever shared that with you, but well, thank you, man. True I sentiment. Had very much. I'm feeling yeah. totally uncomfortable here, but so, yeah, sorry about you. that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Thank you. And I'm just curious, did any of your family members serve in the military? Oh, yeah. My father was in the army during World War II. Yeah. And my uh, my uncle, his brother, his name was, he died a few years ago, Charles Figley. Oh. He served in the Marine Corps in Korea. So it's oh, kind of amazing. That yeah. is amazing. So here's a couple of points where our lives intersect, besides our role in the mental health and, you know, talking about military mental health care, but our personal lives. First of all, my father was a career Marine, enlisted Marine. He was a combat veteran of both Korea and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
And so I don't know if your paths may have crossed at some point, who knows, without knowing that. But also, I come, you know, I had uncles who, a couple of uncles who died on, in Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal each, both of which were Marines. And then uncles who served in the Army in Vietnam. And then I had, of my brothers, my oldest brother was a career Air Force, and he deployed during the first Gulf War. I have another brother, younger brother, who served in the Air Force. And then another younger brother, Brian, who was a career Air Force enlisted person who deployed Afghanistan and other places like that. So I come in and I lived on a Marine Corps base for most of my life. And in 1968, which was the height of the Tet Offensive, I was living on Camp Pendleton, Marine Corps base in Oceanside, where I lived there for a few years. And my father was deployed at that time during the Tet Offensive. And one of the things that one of my most vivid memories was I was about eight years old in the third grade. Uh, at a San Rafael elementary school on the post, right? And we started hearing the loudspeakers would go off, whether it's during class or recess. And everybody, it was from the principal's office. And typically what happened, we were in, we'd be in a classroom and that would go off and they would announce that a student's name to come to the door. I don't, did I share this with you before? Story? I, it was in the movie, I think. Oh, it might have been. Right. Things. All right. But, but so we would we were instructed to put our heads down on our on the desk and keep our heads down. And a student's name would be called. They would go to the front door accompanied by our teacher and they would meet a group at the door. That was the bright, you know, the principal, the vice principal, a nurse and, and somebody in uniform who I guess now was a chaplain. And this would be names of people that friends of ours who we were playing with during recess just maybe 30 minutes ago, and we would not see them again. They would disappear from our lives. And one, one day, one of my best friends, Rodney, that happened to him. His name was called. I, I looked over. I, you know, I was panicked. I, I, I thought you know, I, I lost my best friend. And I look at it, follow him with my eyes as the teacher accompanying him to the door. And, and, and he was met by that entourage and, and then disappeared from school. But I took my bicycle that day and drove, pedaled, not drove, but pedaled over to his home, which was a few blocks away. And, and then Rodney could not be come out to play. His mom was very uh, tearful and very sullen. And, and so I came back about a week later and there was a moving truck and I never saw Rodney again after that. So that moment kind of overlaps, you know, a bit with your your stay in Vietnam, and I'm back home on a, on a Marine base as a family member, and I'm living through what was, you know, one of the largest battles during that time in the Vietnam War. And that kind of set something in my mind. And eventually, I joined the Marine Corps myself, following my father's footsteps. And I was enlisted, and we both, I think, raised to the rose to the rank of sergeant, if I'm not mistaken. So Sergeant Figley, Sergeant Russell, and and I and when I came in 1979, I saw all the remnants of of Vietnam. I mean, there was people who were really you know, kind of that thousand yard stare. Substance abuse was rampant. There was marijuana; you could smell that outside the barracks. I mean, it was just you know, there was no drug testing during that time. So you could see the effects, the lingering effects of those who, who had served in Vietnam and stayed on active duty. 
And so I started recognizing that. And then eventually I got out after 10 years into pursue a doctorate in psychology. And that's where I learned about your work. And because my interest had been about trauma, I saw some effects on my dad and the changes in him each time he came back from deployments to war. And it just kind of sat in my brain and I started becoming interested in psychology, understanding more about trauma and then uh, did my dissertation on Vietnam combat veterans. And so got to interview dozens of veterans, both from Korean War and World War II, as well as Vietnam. And from there, that's where I, again, lit the light. I wanted to go back into military as a psychologist. And, and I had these, all this literature at that time about the effects of war stress and how the military's dealt with war stress was kind of in my mind. And then when I deployed in 2003 in support of the invasion of Iraq at a field hospital, we did some dog and pony shows about some of the innovative things we were trying to do, like we did combat stress screenings for everybody who came through our field hospital to identify them as maybe needing follow-up when they get to Walter Reed, when they transfer back to the States and, and did some re reconditioning programs and other things that help rehabilitate folks, you know, while they're still in country. And then we had a, the highest ranking military psychologist, a, an admiral in the Navy came through our field hospital and we gave them the dog and pony show about our how many people we saw and how many people we screened, how many people we identified early as needing help and kind of so they don't fall through the cracks, et cetera. And his statement was, well, this is all, you know, very interesting, very good work, everybody. Uh, but unfortunately, it'll all be forgotten and have to be recreated by somebody else. And that that immediately hit me hard because that was in the back of my brain. All that research I had done and all my lived experiences and the, reading the books that you wrote and the articles that you wrote, it kind of came back to me that we are repeating history in the 21st century. And we'll talk more about that history and in future episodes. But that that's what got my interest in it. And then my two of my sons, both of my sons, that is, joined the military. One was a fleet Marine Force a corpsman assigned to the Marine Corps in Afghanistan. And then I was a Marine that went to Afghanistan. And my eldest daughter joined the Navy and she was deployed in the Middle East. So I had a personal interest in trying to not only affect change about mental health care in the military for active duty and service members, but also selfishly to protect my own and, and future generations too. Mark, let me ask you, going back to your dissertation and you're interviewing all of these combat veterans. Yeah. I was blown away gradually by my experience in doing that, going from West Lafayette, Indiana, as a professor into the, the great Midwest. And it took a lot out of me. How did you fare? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was, I was completely unprepared. I mean, I was a psychology, <laughs> I, I was a graduate student, right? But yeah, I mean, some of the stories just were, they hit hard and, you know, it took, I didn't know how to process it. Of course, I didn't, it just, I kind of kept them into me and internalized all the stories. And that's how you dealt with it is you internalized it. Yeah. I, you know, I stuffed it. I didn't really recognize stuffed. it. And then but I also, I got to live 
what you wrote about in terms of secondary trauma, that as a Navy psychologist, you know, after 17 years of that, of that work, I, I, I have, I am the prototypical impaired provider when it comes to secondary trauma. I have every aspect. So all that stuffing, all those stories, all the vivid memories of other people became my memories. My dominant emotion is anger, irritability, frustration. Mm -hmm. And I am amongst those who are struggling with PTSD and but although mine is more vicarious in nature. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it, in, I want you to return to those contexts, that, that, those years of experience as a Navy officer and, and psychologist. But one of the things that I, I'm not quite sure of, but anyway, it happened. When I faced the reality of the opportunity to do the interviewing, and I, like you, experienced, you know, the backwash, if you will, from those uh, experiences, I had the choice of saying, okay, ooh, I learned something from that and never do that again, or manage what I have acquired in, with regard to all the trauma and stress, et cetera, et cetera, that's mm -hmm. balled up inside of me as, as a young professional uh, at Purdue University. It was, it, it led to my first divorce, actually, as I, as it turns out, because she got caught up in all of this. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why uh, from the beginning in this work, I focused on families, as you know, and yes. very interested in, in that. But the real innovations, et cetera, et cetera, are happening at a at another level contextually. So you know, I can't stick with families. I haven't been for some time now. But the thing that always <laughs> struck me is when I am then have the opportunity by choice to focus on trauma, I began doing that. And I think what happened was that when I was presenting er early on about combat, and talked about the traumatic consequences of combat on those that I've studied, at least, I began to just talk about my own experiences and how, you know, normal and natural and all that. And I mentioned it, we were part of a film that was made, and I think I that was referenced in there. Those are the things that I was going through that I know it was due to uh, military service and to combat and to people dying etc. But it, it didn't, I guess I didn't allow it to enter fully into my <laughs> psyche or into my attention, but it's creeped in along the way. I mean, it wasn't, it was like, oh, okay. And I found yeah. that I, that I became more understanding and sophisticated about those things, the longer time went by. Mm -hmm. So I never took any classes or I didn't really read anything stirring that would lead me to get over my Vietnam experience, but it sort of like it just unfolded naturally. Mm. So how did you, you know, going from enlisted Marine, you know, combat, Vietnam combat veteran, yeah. how did the idea of becoming, you know, getting into social work, mental health, how did that, did your, your Vietnam experiences relate to that anyway you're if you could talk a little bit about how you got into yeah, that's that's a great question i was at the university of hawaii and i was 
there, well, I guess I graduated in 1970, but I can remember very well during that period of time, because I was working, I got the GI Bill, so we were making fairly good money. Mm -hmm. But the thing that was impacting me at the time was not really Vietnam or anything like that. I mean, I certainly knew of of kids. I guess they weren't kids. For me, they were kids. I was a kid. For them, I understood, well, like I understand for myself, is that it's an extraordinary experience and something that I had never experienced or intended to experience in my life, mm. being in combat and being in the Marine Corps, for that matter. Yeah. But I think gradually, uh, with various kinds of movies that one watches as well as individuals that we talk to i i tend to be nosy i tend to be <laughs> i ask a lot of questions uh mostly because i can't carry around that many <laughs> answers <laughs> yeah. but um in, in so doing i i'm i'm able to understand myself better as well as you know mostly focusing on others and it was I, i'm not exactly sure if it was an epiphany but I began to recognize and be able to see myself outside of my own experiences and began to think about transforming what I experienced into something that would be useful. And yeah. I remember the first academic, well, it's the second academic job, I guess, because I, no, it was the first after I graduated. And I had the opportunity to go to Bowling Green State University as an instructor, actually. And I was, the, the course primarily that I was teaching was marriage and family. <laughs> oh, okay. Social psychology of marriage and family. Yes. And, uh, and it was wonderful. And I, first semester, I had this many students and the next semester I had double that number of students. And I really enjoyed it and liked it. And they liked it too. And I gave great, I guess, for them, analogies, et cetera. But I started, I hope this is part of your question. I, I started a, a rap group without really knowing. <laughs> right. Because I said, look, I am a faculty member here. If any of you have any interest in in joining us, uh, please do. And we had, you know, seven or eight the first time, which was kind of remarkable. And they were uh, all veteran uh, Vietnam. Oh veteran. yeah, they were all in right. Vietnam, which is yeah. kind of you know, relatively unusual. Yeah. So it only lasted twice mm -hmm. for various reasons, but I I think I caught the, whatever bug there was to catch with regard to you know, veteran services or so. I mean, it's not like any services. I, mean, I didn't get any money or anything, but just right. to connect with someone else who was a stranger mm -hmm. and you're able to say, you're able to connect with their military service and your military service. It's it's kind of, it's kind of weird. And I, I should be used to it by now. It's been many, many years since that time. I don't, what was, how has been your experience in which you discover people are veterans and then you make an effort at least to figure out were we ever were we ever together or were we ever stationed together or whatever does that happen to you yeah well yeah it's usually when you meet somebody new you know they're a veteran you talk a little bit about you know where they were stationed or something like that I'm trying to find those points where you might have intersected right um but you knew they were a veteran in the start well, no, not of course you don't know that just by looking at people but if they introduce themselves as a veteran now Currently, I'm working, I'm doing VA disability exams, so I, I meet uh, veterans, obviously, uh, so that's a little different. But out, if I was just out and about, 
you know, you might see somebody wearing a cap says Vietnam veteran or Korean war veteran or Gulf war veteran, something like that. So, you know, they wear some type of apparel that they're, they're using to, to publicly inform us that they're a veteran. And so I, I've started up conversations with that and asked them a little bit about that. Well, given the fact that you know their status, aren't there times in which you're talking to someone and it became fairly obvious to them or to you about their status, but they weren't sure about you? Oh, sure. Yeah. And they'll ask, you know, if I'm asking them about their service, they'll ask, of course. did you serve too? So yeah, that kind of segues easily into it. But yeah, I don't typically wear a lot of apparel, military apparel, partly because I, I guess I I don't want to be asked. You know, some some people are very open about it and, and welcome that type of interaction. I'm and going back to this idea of secondary trauma. It's one of the things I kind of avoid, along with phones and so on. But but you know, if somebody does ask me, I will answer and you know, strike up a conversation that way. Uh, yeah, but just you know, you mentioned the films that we were in, and that film, current film, is Strangers at Home produced by Beth Dolan. And in that film too is Stephen Elliott, our friend who is an army ranger who was involved in the tragic friendly fire incident with Pat Tillman, whose anniversary is coming up or our past, I think recently it's something in this general time frame. But and the other film that I was involved in, this is back around 2015 is thank you for your service. And it's not the Steven Spielberg version, but this is, produced by Tom Donahue. And the reason why I'm in these documentaries, and this kind of gets back a little bit of who I am, is that when that admiral I mentioned came to our field hospital and said, everything is done is very impressive, but will be forgotten and need to be rediscovered. As I said, that kind of lit up my memories of what is what I knew at then is the history of military mental health care that I had tucked away. It was dormant. And that that ignited this DNA of outrage. And I started surveying uniform mental health providers from the Army, Air Force, and Navy, Marine Corps, and psychiatrists, psych psychologists, social workers, et cetera, right? All the people who would be the primary experts that soldiers and airmen and Marines and sailors would go to. And I asked them a simple question. How many of you have been trained and supervised train and or supervise and utilizing, administering any one of the four evidence-based treatments for PTSD. In 2004, the VA DOD published the very first clinical practice guidelines for PTSD. And they recognized four top treatments that they said everybody should have access to, right? So I already knew the answer to this question, but I went and surveyed these people when I got back in 2004. And 2005, I surveyed like 111 uniform mental health providers. The answer was about 97% had not been trained or supervised in any of the evidence-based treatments. What was the percentage? 97%. I knew it was a lot. <laughs> it was a whopping number. And I, again, I already knew that based on my own experience as a psychology intern and what I saw and how we train military psychologists and mental health providers in general. So I then, I went to you, my friend. You may not remember this, but I I was trying to publish this article and to get the word out. 
And I also submitted before I published it in a journal that you edit called Traumatology. Oh, yeah. This is back in 2007, that article came out. But before that, I had submitted my results of these training surveys up all the way up to the highest ranks of the Pentagon and military medicine. And along with that was a plan and what we can do to correct that. And myself and Stephen Silver, who is a VA psychologist and ran one of the VA programs at Coatesville, Pennsylvania, we started training people on one of those evidence-based treatments called EMDR, which I know you're familiar with. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. A treatment that's been around since 1989 has been recognized by every international and domestic practice guideline as a, a treatment of choice uh, for PTSD. And so you published that article. But before that, as I said, I started communicating the results of that training survey. And then Stephen Silver and I started conducting kind of regional EMDR trainings. We would go to different regions. So on the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, uh, in Asia, we did six of these regional trainings. And I think we trained about 256 uniformed mental health providers, civilian and active duty, who were you know working with military mental health, and gave them this free six-day training, supervised, and gave them a protocol they could use to back. And they went and took back their training, and we followed them up, at least some of them, about what was it like when you used this treatment now in your clinic, in your hospital. And we got, you know, amazing results that they were saying, like, for people who had not been wounded in action, who had PTSD, they were getting significant reduction in PTSD and depression scores after four sessions, uh, almost to a non-clinical level. And then if they had been wounded in action, it was eight sessions. So it, it cost the government nothing. And we, instead of everybody having to go out and get their own training, which was the standard way of training mental health providers, we brought the training to these regions, saved millions of dollars, showed the efficacy, what happens when you use an evidence-based treatment, and, and why we should be doing this, because the war is ratcheting up, right? I mean, this was, again, 2005, six, seven. Uh, so we were, we were heavy into Iraq and the resurgence there. So I, I submitted probably about, I don't know, half a dozen or more uh, memoranda and point paper all the way up the food chain, top of military medicine and all the different services as well. And got feedback. I got awarded a meritorious service medal awarded by President Bush and whatnot, you know, for this effort, uh, grassroots effort that me and the VA psychologists put together. And what they were told is that very good work, but they didn't do anything with this. They didn't, um, they didn't implement it. They didn't support it afterwards. So people were still not getting the training. And I'm at that Marine Corps base uh, in Iwakuni where I was the only psychologist for 6,000 Marines in a rural base. And I'm covering two other bases with a pager and a duty phone that I'm on call 24 seven for four years I was there. And that's when hearing Congress hearings on military mental health care, the DOD uh, leaders would go up there and say, we're providing the best health care, mental health care that has ever been afforded to warriors of any generation. And we're 
have immediate access to top treatments and people are getting help for, you know, their PTS or whatever. And, you know, it, we got well-trained, we've got enough staff, we're doing, we're doing Herculean efforts dealing with stigma and everything else, which is all bullshit. It was not true. So in, in 2005, I filed a complaint with the Department of Defense Inspector General Fraud, Waste, and Abuse Hotline. And it was a 40-some-odd-page detailed analysis about where we're failing across the board with mental health care. Not enough staff, not enough training, not providing treatment, not dealing with stigma, not helping families, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I submitted, that was supposed to be a confidential transmission from me to the inspector general, but I took my complaint and I sent it to all the surgeon generals in the military, and including the, the, at that time, the current head of military medicine. Because in my complaint, I alleged gross mismanagement, gross negligence was the word I used, gross negligence by military medicine for failure to meet mental health needs. And, and you knew exactly what you were saying. Oh, I had, I knew what I was saying. I had the data to back it up. And that's where I became known. And my reason for being in those documentaries is that I wasn't, became a military whistleblower at that time, which I tried vehemently not to be, but that was the last recourse in order to get the word out and get Congress and the top leaders in the Pentagon to take seriously this epidemic we were having in suicides and untreated PTS and domestic violence and all and, uh, all the ramifications of a rampant crisis and untreated mental health needs. Yeah, that's but, terrific and wonderful, but it it's part of your cynicism, part of your frustration and your... Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, that, because unfortunately, not much has changed. And then we'll talk about say... in our, our next episode. I'll, I'll provide some evidence to that effect. There are people that are today, and I see it in my when I work with the VA right now, that, that there are uh, people are continually falling through the cracks and aren't getting afforded the type of standard treatment that has been recommended by the DOD and the VA in their practice guidelines. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the this kind of frustration about all of these men and women who've been in the military, including combat and not getting the services they need. It's it's something that I've been fighting for and looks like I haven't been fighting hard enough because- Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's the issue. It's yeah. like, who's, who's hearing this, right? And you know, who's accountable, who's responsible for making changes when it comes to mental health care? And- yeah, I, I mean, you've written, as I said, volumes on trauma and the effects of war and and et cetera. And the information's out there. It's known. This is not something that's secret or that has to be discovered. But yet every war, we kind of have to rediscover these lessons, don't we? Well, we have made sure that people uh, are able to easily access the highlights of the tremendous... <laughs> work that we've been doing because you know I, I'm very proud that this is our book psychiatric casualties it's not like we're advertising it or anything here there's hardly anyone who knows about it seems to me I mean we need we need as collectively you and me need to do a better job of, of pushing it out there 
Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say that the, <clears throat> the attention span is very short. And it's interesting now that we are ratcheting up potentially another war, et cetera, there, that may change. But yeah. the, uh, it, it's it's heartbreaking, frankly. And I know that, okay, fine, heartbreaking. We can only say that once. But my hope in this series is that we will come awake, that we can generate other people who get worked up as we have, and that we can yeah. collectively do something and continue the pressure, continue, you know, the effort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's going to take a groundswell and, you know, from veterans and military families, but also people who are not affiliated with the military, because the lessons of war trauma affect how we treat trauma in the private sector as well. Oh, and you know, just like battlefield medicine has, you know, all, all the innovations in in medicine and in, in emergency care came out of a lot of that came out of the military experiences and that affects uh, civilians all. So all of us have a stake in it and it's trying to get the information out so that we get enough of a groundswell where you get journalists who might be interested in the stories to investigate a little bit. And we get more importantly, the politicians who are too busy squabbling amongst themselves, but all of which whatever left or right leaning or in middle all which pontificate of these support to veterans and their families. And you know, it's time to put the money in where the mouth is, I guess. No, that's a good way to put it for sure. Yeah. yeah but so, you know, our book that we keep referencing, we're, we're going to be going through in this, in this show, various chapters through this book. And we're not trying to sell this book. My, I, we donate the proceedings to nonprofit. So there's no personal gain from this. But the book is titled Psychiatric Casualties, How and Why the Military Ignores the Full Cost of War. It was published in 2021 by Columbia University, which we're eternally grateful for. And it is the first and only book ever published that really analyzes about the generational crisis in mental health that we view as largely preventable and self-inflicted. And more importantly, we give concrete solutions, not that we dreamed up, but that were have been recommended from each generation, you know, since the First World War. And so there is a blueprint already out there, and we're we're just kind of repeating it and maybe framing it in more modern terms. But that's what we'll be talking about in future episodes: is not only the why we have these crises, but more importantly what we can do about that to end this cycle of uh, mental health neglect and stigma and both in the military and outside the military. Yes, I wanna uh, bring up something that is rather timely. I got yep. a note from um, the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. It's the one that organization's been around it will, coming up on 40 years and they're organizing the 40th anniversary. I don't know if, if you've been contacted yet, Mark, but the, the organization is very important because it was the first organization focusing on trauma. It's like, oh, by the time finally we're doing that. But in the effort to, uh, for the 40th, they're inviting a panel of past presidents. And I served as president of the, it was called the Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, not necessarily international. Mm -hmm. We assumed we didn't have to say international because, you know, Trauma affects everybody and yeah. is found everywhere. So anyway, but you know, that was 
the, we, were, we founded the organization in 1985 and I served as you know founding president, but we weren't able, believe it or not, mm -hmm. we were not able to find a consensus about who would be the next president. We had various factions, oh my gosh, within the organization already that were lining up. So I went ahead and, and did it for another year and you know, was associated with the organization, obviously, for more than just a couple of years, have been for a long time. But the point here is, I remember the first initial times that we were all together. And uh, the, I think the first one, yeah, the, the first, it's on paper and it's in the history books. Uh, that was in Atlanta in 1985. And that's the same year my daughter, my uh, second daughter was born. Mm. And during that period of time, we here's an example of a group of attendees attending a conference that you wouldn't have thought about. Airline stewardesses. Maybe they're not even called that anymore. I'm sure, probably. Pendants. They have a team of uh, airline uh, stewardesses, females, but they're also males as well, mm -hmm. that were trained in disaster mental health, were trained in the possibility that there would be a crash or there would be an emergency experience, obviously they need that training and they yeah. have it, but they had a lot uh, to train us. They're, they had a lot to say about our own education and that's what happened. But the, the interesting thing about the goofiness of professionals and I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, I'm a family therapist, whatever, there was this sense of superiority, I think, among some members Mm. About, uh, well, I'm advanced degrees and I know what's happening. Yeah. I have a law degree or medical degrees, et cetera. Right. But those women were extraordinarily talented and articulate, et cetera. So at least for the first several years, I think the membership recognized that those who were presenting on trauma did not have to have any degrees after their name that they had you know, professional standing and they mm -hmm. would have been vetted, if you will. But I think that those stewardesses serve in many ways to remind all of us of how consequential trauma is and how universal it is and how all of us need to be educated about it, whether we care about the military or not. And I think that's happening today, but it certainly didn't, it wasn't the norm in, in 1985. Right. <laughs> The society was founded. Mark, when did you hear about the society or the International Society? Uh, well, I know it was, I don't know if uh, it was during my time I doing my dissertation, but certainly when I left graduate school, I think I became a member of the society. Okay. I started getting the, the journal. Uh, I think it was, it was a journal of traumatic stress. Yes. Right. What's it was the flagship journal, really? At that time, I think that was the only journal that was dedicated to the field of trauma. Am I right on that? Yeah, traumatology was the second. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and they, you know, they published clinical practice guidelines too for PTSD. Yes. And so, I, you know, I always try to keep up with what are the new renditions of that. And yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting in terms of the how things are are falling out or unfolding, let's say, mm -hmm. following the pandemic. I mean, I know following is even incorrect and that there's a continuation uh, to a certain extent, 
But there have been major shifts. And I think a lot of them had to do with we were all cloistered <laughs> in our homes and peeking out from time to time. Uh, it, it certainly was a, a time of turmoil with regard at the national level, which is where we are today in 2024. Absolutely. But it was a challenging time. And I think for ISTSF, American Psychological Association, there, there was a tremendous amount of turmoil not knowing how things would fall out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that the notion of how employers were concerned about their employees returning to work following pandemic. Mm-hmm. We all now know how we all liked the flexibility. We like the the Zoom that we're you know utilizing now. Right. So I think that it it has made a major change. But the thing that I have seen during the pandemic is among the students, you know, that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And the students seem to be far more willing to admit they have a mental health issue or challenge or consequence maybe it's different in washington yeah. state but oh, uh, in oh. new orleans man <laughs> yeah so yeah, there, there it is. yeah very refreshing and it certainly mm-hmm. increased the enrollment in our classes so yeah i mean it's interesting that you say and i i think there's some truth to that that the current generation is more open to talking about mental health you know there's less stigma you know, at least, you know, for this younger generation, will that hold true as they move forward in their lives when they start to, you know, develop working careers and, and things of that sort will be something, but, you know, it's certainly promising, but stigma is such a huge problem. And we, you know, we have a whole chapter dedicated to what we refer to as the weaponization of stigma weaponization. and the military has, you know, purposefully used stigma in order to keep the numbers down and to avoid, you know, dealing with the mental health dilemma, which we'll talk about in another episode. So, you, but it, but it's encouraging. It's an encouraging sign, at least, that we might be making some movement on that. Can you give examples of 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 that with regard to the the stigma and dealing with it, addressing that? The, the I guess what I'm I'm getting at is that. I see that also with the, among the faculty and among students in terms of pushing mm-hmm. back and, and pretending you're not having these issues. Yeah. Part of it is the professionalization because the social workers for, that I work with, uh, I'm a psychologist, but I work with social workers. Mm-hmm. It is, they're at a master's level already. Mm-hmm. So there is the expectation, you know, that they're, they're going to be better. But tell me about the, the experiences and the, any great examples of what you're talking about with regard to mental health and the uh, untreatable, uh, the untreated and those that suck it up and try to hold on and move forward and all that sort of thing. Are there stories that? Oh, goodness. Yeah. There's no shortage of stories. They say two days a week, I'm doing, you know, these VA disability exams and these people coming, you know, men and women coming out of the military and, I could say probably 70% or more had no identified mental health problems in their service treatment records because they never disclosed that. And, you know, universally, the reason why was one, it'd be perceived as weak. You know, so that's not what a soldier or a Marine wants to be perceived as, right? It's weak. 
Secondly, they would be concerned about, well, if they if they were taken out of their role, that that would affect they all, somebody else would have to fill their role and they would feel guilty about leaving their, you know, their war buddies in that sense. But an overwhelmingly a fear of reprisal from their careers. Like, how would this impact a submariner or a pilot or anybody who is in a, in a deployment or a security clearance? So overwhelmingly, people don't speak out about mental health. Again, there are there is certainly a subset that will, maybe 20, 25% that I see have in their records where they actually broach the, the, the stigma, but overwhelmingly most don't. And then I have to help them create the reasons why. And that, you know, these, these conditions actually started on active duty, even though they were not identified at the time. So, you know, the stories are that, as I said, they're just worried about what would happen to them and their families if they came forward and, and identify themselves as struggling in some way. The same is true for first responders. Oh, yeah. I think some of the worst, to be quite honest, are our fellow mental health professionals. I'll put myself yes. in that boat, too. <laughs> right? The last thing you want to be as a mental health professional is identified as an impaired provider. And that just by the fact that you might have be struggling with depression or anxiety or PTS or whatnot, doesn't mean that you have that condition, you're actually impaired, but that would be the fear, the perception of how people might take that if they associate your name with having a condition. So we're usually very reluctant as a profession to actually seek help even though we're the ones often, you know, we're the ones giving advice and and giving the help and sometimes. I was invited to uh, University of Georgia to make an all-day presentation, basically in the area of uh, self-care, but uh, also yeah. health care, et cetera. And uh, there, there were a number of discussions about that, about uh, how you you have to accept the fact that this is impairing, that this is impacting, et cetera. But then what do you do with regard to clients? They need to be confident in their practitioner. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the model that I developed is 13-item model. Um, it has self-care going directly to, to uh, secondary trauma. Yes. The area of specialization. So there's lots and lots of things that we can do just in terms of our own taking care of our own self, which is wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Again, thank you for writing the book on compassion fatigue and secondary <laughs> trauma. But, you know, in future episodes, I'll be sharing my own personal struggles with that and how I broke down and and how that affected me, my family and my and the patients that relied on me due to not practicing good self-care. Again, doing exactly the opposite as we preach. So I am I am guilty of that as as charged. It, the cause, yeah. cause of that, young man. Yeah. Is, what is it? Four years in the Marine Corps before you went to the Navy. I mean, yeah. Fine, you were a jet mechanic, okay, but still, you were around uh, jets. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one of those being around jets was as a, <laughs> again as a young enlisted Marine jet mechanic. As you said, we had a. A plane that was, we had two seaters. They were A4TFs that were trainers, A4 jets. And in the back seat was the CEO of the base. In the front seat, the pilot was 
a major who was the XO uh, of our squadron. And they, it was a wet day and they tried to do a landing and apparently they didn't, they didn't jettison all the fuel in their tanks and they, they skidded on the runway and then went into the grassy area and flipped several times. And the uh, colonel was beheaded and it was just gruesome as all hell. And who's out there picking up the pieces literally or is yourself, myself. We did a FOD walk as they would call it. And we just go up and pick up pieces of, you know, human matter and parts and everything else and so yeah trauma is a work in occupational hazard in the military regardless of our vocation there's all kinds of things that we're exposed to but we'll talk about that more in future episodes and you know as as we wind down here for this first episode do you have any parting thoughts i guess i i feel better and more confident now that we're doing this sort of thing but we've talked together about a lot of things over the years. And, and I think we naturally slipped into that kind of give and take, et cetera. I mean, uh, you all are, can only hear us. Uh, those of you who are listening, <clears throat> we can see each other and eventually we'll have video. But I guess I feel better now than I did, you know, when we started simply by, you know, getting used to the, the banter. Yeah. But in, in all seriousness, I really do hope that this is uh, potentially a, a life saving or contributing to saving someone's life by hearing about it. We're not particular about whether it's a veteran or not. Uh, there's lots and lots of family members that would naturally be drawn to this kind of, of information and really? feel more connected. So mm-hmm. I hope that will happen as well. Yeah, and so do I. Yeah, we we. You know, again, all we can do is put the information out there, but we also would welcome people's feedback too. Uh, so I'm going to give an email that people can reach out to contact us through to ask questions and all that. We're going to stay away from kind of clinical, getting to clinical work. So I, I, I don't want to step into that role. But as far as um, a repository for questions or comments, uh, you can email m. Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L-P-H-D at gmail.com. M. Russell, Ph.D. at gmail.com. And we will get to your questions and we may use, you know, the discussion as a way to come for future episodes as well. But this next episode that we'll be going into the introduction of our work are on psychiatric casualties and the how and why the military ignores the full cost of war. And we'll look forward to talking with you then, Charles. Yeah, that'd be fun. All right. All right. We'll sign off for now. Everyone be well. Thank you.